0: Good evening. Welcome to the Critical Hour. We're coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm Garland Nixon, standing in for my co host, Dr. Wilmer Leon, who's off today. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. Elon Musk has stated that he will allow former President Donald Trump to return to Twitter. Also, President Biden's disinformation board reminds some of World War I era propaganda and persecution of dissent. Joining us now to discuss this subject is James Carey. James, James is the host of the Left is Dead podcast, which you can find at leftisdead.com. James, welcome back.
1: Oh, good to be here. As long as we're allowed to be here, I
0: guess. Yeah, exactly. Well, we can be here. We just have to be silent the whole time because you know right. we might say something that's unacceptable. So let's start I, I with this. What do you What do you think about the Musk Trump Twitter thing? So Elon Musk is saying you know it's wrong. Trump should not have been you know uh, stopped from being on Twitter. What are your thoughts?
1: I mean, I, I just think this is Elon's kind of ploy to you know be in the spotlight as always. Uh, this is not to. Um, different from anything else he does. Obviously, he's buying Twitter as a, started as a joke, and here we are, you know. Um, but I think Elon understands the crowd he's appealing to now, and I, but I think they'll be disappointed if if and when he takes over. I'm not 100% confident he will at this point, but I don't know. I, I think that he's right. I don't know that Trump should have been banned. He was the president, after all. He's the first president to be banned from Twitter. And um, I, I just wonder that the people putting their faith in Elon at this moment, I feel it's a bit foolhardy because I don't trust him to actually do anything. I'm not 100% confident he'll actually – Go through with the purchase of Twitter at this
0: point. I certainly agree with you. I think, you know, people, it's kind of like an any port in a storm feeling where yeah. people are afraid, they're concerned, they see, you know, kind of a totalitarian state taking place, and they see one person say something. He says the right thing. Hey, I think we should have free speech. I'm buying Twitter. And people are like, all right, I'll let Trump back on. And we hear the, oh, and I call them the fascists, the ultra liberals now saying, oh my God, he might allow free speech. He might allow people to to say things that are not allowed to be said. This is terrible. And to, uh, part of it is watching the reaction from the ultra liberals. And that's what I call them. I mean, if ultra nationalists are fascist, then ultra liberals, in my opinion, are fascists, just a different strain of fascism to watch their reaction. I think, uh, unfortunately, and maybe even inappropriately, it inspires some people to support Musk and say, and and believe that he's going to do the right thing. I'm not saying that he will, or won't, we'll, time will find out because they're like, they're like, well, if those people hate him, he must be doing something right, James.
1: Yeah, I think so. And that is really, that's a lot of our politics now, isn't it? It's just, I'm making the other side mad. Um, and my concern about Musk is, you know, again, this is a guy who bids for contracts alongside Jeff Bezos to the U S government. Um, he's a guy who shuts down union organizers anytime they appear in his factories. So he's not really any type of free speech warrior, obviously, you know, and he's no type of anti-government crusader. And I just think that it's foolish to put your faith in him. But, yeah, a lot of people, it seems like their politics are what will make my opponent most angry. And I think a lot of people have mistakenly attached themselves to Musk through that. It's foolish to trust him because, like I said, this man is deeply connected to the United States government. You know, this, this will be a government outlet, basically, because of how much money he receives from the federal government. So I, I don't trust him to actually be responsible. His methods for what he plans to do with Twitter seem unlikely like getting rid of ads and trying to be in every country still while making free speech here. Um, but yeah, I think we put our, a lot of faith in these people. It's just like Donald Trump. I'm not a real believer in Donald Trump, but some people were and some people liked him just because he made the other side angry. Uh, I think it's foolish to put your faith in billionaires, period, obviously. But I, I think that we have, we have this politics now where it's just I want to. That's why a lot of people want back on Twitter. They're tired of not being able to own their enemy on, on social media platform because they're all stuck on Gab or whatever.
0: Politico.com has an interesting article, Why Biden is in Danger of Replicating Woodrow Wilson's Propaganda Machine. The Administrator's New Disinformation Board is Falling into All the Same Traps as a Disturbing World War I Initiative. I will say this. The article makes some good points, but still around the edges if you read it, it still has this idea that— it may be okay to have this thing as long as they define it a little better, as long as they clarify the role. And I think that's in, in error. Anyway, your thoughts on the comparison to World War One to Woodrow Wilson's um, uh, CPI and the Gary Poppins and the disinformation board?
1: Yeah, this, the author of this piece— um John Maxwell Hamilton and uh, Kevin Kozar. I saw that they put. You know, they were not confident in who was appointed to lead the disinformation board. Right. Right. They're, well, we want someone more even keeled and who doesn't. Who hasn't made partisan comments. Or, you know, um, there's been comments about Hunter Biden and being Russian disinformation, the laptop and everything. They want someone even keeled. But I think there are a lot of. There's one, there's nobody like that in the United States. It's impossible. Anyone to reach that position of power wouldn't be nonpartisan. It's like saying the Supreme Court is nonpartisan. And, but I do think they are right that this does kind of eerily, you know, reek of World War I. Um And I want to say this is a, the radical liberals are kind of people who support this because they're so afraid of Russian disinformation or whatever. Uh, you know, it'll be. If, you're like a, if you consider yourself a leftist and you're among these liberals, you will be silenced at some point. And we're seeing the equivalent of digital Palmer raids right now. This is what's happening to like Mint Press and Consortium News when they cut off their PayPal, right? This is the same thing as the Palmer raids when they came in and busted up socialist presses. The actual voices that are going to be punished the most, and we see it now that there's a real war going on that the United States cares about, are anti-war voices, are people who don't want to... Start more aggression in Europe now, essentially. All of a sudden, it's important because it's Europe, I guess. We could talk about Yemen. We could talk about Syria as long as we didn't get too popular. But now everyone cares about Ukraine. So I see a lot of similarities because there are – I mean, we've already seen independent media down since 2016. They've all been kicked off social media. They've all had to find new revenue streams or just they disappeared. So the raids have started. I mean, it's just digital now. I, and I don't think anyone in charge of that, whether they're Republican or Democrat, honestly, is going to do anything to protect real anti-war voices because somebody with any type of actual fairness isn't going to be put a position that high. There's no way you can find someone nonpartisan to put in a position that high because they've gotten to that position by doing you favors. Just as it says, you know, Wilson's guy, Creel, did by writing great stuff about him during the campaign.
0: You know, one of the thing issues I have with this discussion, this style of discussion in this particular article in Politico, is there is an implication, there's an inherent implication in it, that the U.S. is an honest actor, that the U.S. government is somehow trying to do the right thing. They say, to be clear, a democracy depends on the government's provision of facts, whether trade statistics or transparency on what it is doing. The United States empire has completely gone to the, you know, I mean, has completely moved to lying and and squashing dissent and squashing information. So we, what we have is a war on critical thinking. A government that literally says we're going to put out lots of lies, and if anybody says something that's true, we're going to stop. We're going to call it in- disinformation and stop them, and or anything that goes false or true if it goes outside of our narrative or it harms harms our narrative. So what we have here is not an honest player and an honest actor that in any way, shape, or form would try to stop disinformation. What What we've got is a bias actor that's working to stop alternative narratives. And they don't come out and say this in that article, James.
1: Yeah, exactly. And that's what they're up against. You know, it is what is propaganda besides an opinion they don't agree with. I mean, we know that, as I mentioned, Mint Press and Consortium News, those aren't media outlets connected to Russia in any way, but they were shut. You know, they're cut off from their funding. And we know that this is happening because they're offering an alternative narrative to the Ukraine war. And... I see that being the biggest, you know, there's a huge danger to them. And we talk all the time about how the U.S. is the global system, you know, global market system is basically played by our rules or you'll be kicked out of it and destroyed. And that's apparently what, you know, the information is now part of the market. Since everyone is online, information is now valuable. And I see the U.S. trying to dominate that just as they've dominated the narrative around the world and dominated the world's economic system with Western capitalism. I think that they're trying to do the same with information now. And that is how it always is. It's framed as, well, the New York Times is fact-checking. The Washington Post is fact-checking. These imperial outlets tied deeply to the state with, you know, ex-CIA agents on the payroll. People like MSNBC telling you the truth is ridiculous. Uh, So there is this sort of world narrative that's being framed by the U.S. And I don't even think some of our allies in, like, Europe agree with it at this point because we have done so much damage to everyone and I think that if we control information, too, we're going to continue to do damage to other people. And you'll see other countries sort of reject this framework setup because this is going to be another point of contention with countries you know, we're kind of on the margins with as far as our relationship goes. This will become a point of contention because we'll be telling them, you know, you can't do X, Y, or Z, or you can't say X, Y, or Z, or we'll punish leaders for saying something wrong. You know, as far as we're going to be measuring what's true or not, how, when does that stop?
0: Once again, the article is in Politico, and it's called Why Biden is in Danger of Replicating Woodrow Wilson's Propaganda Machine. Here's an interesting—let me find it. This is an interesting paragraph, which I—they say its sentence, Indeed, if we are going to have a disinformation governance board, its energy should be directed solely to disinformation that indisputably originates from outside of the country. So the bottom line is this— Get rid of the word, the the first three letters, because what they're saying is information that indisputably originates from outside of the country. Not here's the thing, not false information, not fake information. What they miss again, and I think it's intentionally because if it's American Enterprise Institute, I'm sure they've got their eye on Hezbollah, Hamas, whatever is disinformation, anything that said or BDS. But my point is that. What they're really saying is we're okay with the idea of suppressing dissent. We just want to make sure it's only in the areas that we think are important.
1: Yeah, it's going to be, like you said, it's the counter-narratives, and that's what they're really targeting. And we know what that ends up going to target. You know, We know it'll end up targeting anti-Zionists. It'll target leftists. It'll target anti-war activists, anyone who's anti-capitalist. You know, And um, I think that seeing them say – any information, what is information from outside the country? Like, does that count as, well, an American published something that we think is based on information that originated outside the country. Can I comment on information that originated outside the country, or is that illegal because I got information from outside the country, you know? So I think that saying information, too, and not really explaining what that means, does that mean, well, RT is going to be banned, you know? What does that entail? And that's the scary thing about this because I don't know what it entails because we've seen this done before where media outlets would publish something critical of the U.S. narrative and they would be, you know, called Russian disinformation or linked to it or at best uh, useful idiots for Russian disinformation, which actually I would say is at worst because it's the most insulting one. But that's, you know, these slanders are kind of put against people and they're told, you know, you published a counter-narrative, and that was it. So getting information from outside the country, having a counter-narrative from people in these war zones or things like that, that is what I think they're going to criminalize. It's just anyone trying to access information and trying to even just repeat that information out loud will be punished by this. And I think that's what they're looking for, and it just any way to squash whatever they don't agree with inside the United States.
0: Yeah, 100%. Tulsi Gabbard says, this is the kind of thing you see in dictatorships, the ministry of truth. I think that, to me, and we've got about a minute, I'll get this from you, it's not necessarily just about a dictatorship. A totalitarian government, such as the one that we have now, is centered around an ideology or ideas as opposed to a dictator. It's not one person. It's the woke ideology. It's the neoliberal, neoconservative conservative ideology one minute your thoughts
1: yeah i think that's it everyone just kind of reaches consensus where it's well this is it this is the neoliberal way now that we've had trump right it's just defend the clinton the clintonite order we have to keep the clintonite order intact uh, yes it was better before that but now all we can do is hold and i think that's a conservative position it's a conservative position to try and just hold on to a bad system because you're afraid of a worse one so any liberal doing that is actually they are conservative now I, i'm sorry. But yeah, I think that's what we'll see more
0: of. Well, and I argue fascism for this reason. The thing about, interesting thing about fascism is it borrows. Fascism borrows rhetoric from the left. It borrows rhetoric from the right. It borrows rhetoric from populism. Fascism borrows rhetoric from anywhere because none of it is genuine. So it says whatever it needs to say to, to get you to follow the follow it. And I just I make the argument now, this, this ultra-liberalism that we have is just fascism with a flower on its lapel instead of, you know, a white hood or a Nazi uh, uh, swastika. But, of course, we apparently, unfortunately, we got yeah. those too. now. So thanks a lot. We've been talking with James Carey. He's the host of the Left is Dead podcast. And you can find that at leftisdead.com. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. More on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. In what amounts to sanctioning the EU, Ukraine has turned off a third of the gas flow from Russia to Europe. Also, President Zelensky commemorates Victory Day by sharing a picture of a Ukrainian soldier donning a Nazi SS insignia patch on his uniform. A person who's probably not surprised by the, the, the latter issue going on there is Dan Lazar. Dan is an investigative journalist and author of many books and a friend of the show. Dan, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Uh, thanks for having me. Well, great to have you back. So Ukraine, they're citing a force majeure, which basically, for the, those of you who don't know, a force majeure just simply means some outstanding issue, something that happens that is out of your control, like a war or a, a, a comet striking the earth or something like that. And the Russians are saying, no, we don't know anything about any problems. Everything's flowing normally. And it seems to me that the EU has been gas sanctioned. Your thoughts, Dan Lazar?
2: Well, I mean, it seems that, uh, that, that the Ukraine is, is uh, moving to block off uh, Russian gas shipments to the West, to, to Europe, uh, to deprive Russia of a source of, uh, of revenue. Uh, it kind of makes sense as a wartime maneuver, frankly. I guess if I was in his place, I'd, I would do the same thing. But it's going to wreak havoc with the, uh, the uh, European economy, certainly. And uh, it just sort of goes to show how Europe is being dragged into this fight
0: whether it likes it or not. You know, another thing is Nord Stream 2, if we get back to it, it was the Germans who approached the Russians to build the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. And many people, including me, believed that the instability of the Ukrainian regime was one of the reasons that bo- that, that the, the Germans really wanted to get past Ukraine because they saw Ukraine as the danger and the instability in that country as the danger to their access to cheap and easily um, acquired energy. And in so many ways, they were right in that the Ukrainian regime is the one that cut them off, but also the instability caused by the United States is going to just totally, if this goes through, continues to destroy, annihilate the German economy.
2: Yeah. I mean, first of all, the, um, the, the, reason, the reason that, they, that they, they built Nord Stream 1 and 2 is, the, is that the Ukraine, they, the Russia and the Ukraine got into serious disputes. <clears throat> Sorry. Regarding the uh, pipelines that 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 that, uh, that crossed, uh, the Ukraine, and Ukraine was uh, was was um, was accused of siphoning off gas. Number one, uh, number two, not paying its bills, et cetera, and, um, and and Russia and Russia found those complaints so serious that it felt it was obliged or had, had reason to invest. The considerable sums are required to build a, a, an alternate uh, uh, pipeline through international waters. I mean, this strikes me as a, as a perfectly reasonable response. If someone is giving you trouble, business trouble, then you you stop doing business with them. you do business with someone else. And that's what Nord Stream amounted to. Um, and, and Russia's handling of that pipeline was completely businesslike. I mean, the, the gas was delivered. Uh, you know, it was a perfectly, you know, uh, business-like transaction. And, uh, and, um, and the U.S. only objected when Nord Stream 2 was in the process because somehow this would create a dependency by Germany on Russian gas. But it, it just never made any sense. And um, Russia was well within its, its legal rights, and the U.S. tried to, to sabotage this, and it ultimately succeeded.
0: And ultimately um, humiliated uh, Olaf Scholz by uh, Joe Biden simply saying, I'll stop it if he won't. But I think ultimately the Nord Stream pipeline was not just about that particular instance. I think it represented to the U.S. a connection, an economic connection between Europe and particularly the largest economy in Europe and Russia. And they wanted to extricate um, Europe from um, or, or break up the healthy economic relationship that Europe had with Russia because they still had their sights on eventually breaking up Russia. So realistically, you could argue that the U.S. had both the European economy and the Russian economy in their crosshairs to destroy both of them, and they seem to be quite successful at destroying the, US, the, European, the European economy, but not so successful at destroying the Russian economy to, to date.
2: Yes, well, I, I think that the I think the U.S. aim, the U.S. aim, is always since Jimmy Carter and the Carter Doctrine announced in January 1980, as uh, as Carter was about to uh, exit the White House, um, is that uh, is that the U.S. goal has been to first of all control the Persian Gulf, but equally as important to control the entire global energy trade. Um, so, uh, so the the Persian Gulf gave gave control over the um, over the, the bulk of the world oil business, um, but uh, you know, but but the the idea of Russia and uh, and Germany reaching a separate ag- agreement with gas deliveries uh, caused the U.S. to to draw back in fear, essentially, and the U.S. you know moved uh, very vigorously to cut that off. It saw that arrangement as a threat, but but why should it be a threat? I mean, why is delivering gas any different than delivering wheat or or fertilizer? But the US it sees energy as the key to exerting control over the global economy and that's why it responded the way it did.
0: Uh, any- Another interesting article. The president of Ukraine, Volodymyr Zelensky, saluted the nation for the day of victory over Nazi Germany with a photo of a Ukrainian soldier wearing Nazi symbols on his uniform. On his chest, there was clearly the insignia of the Totenkopf unit. This symbol, which is a skull and crossbones, was the insignia of one of the Waffen SS divisions and of the SS organization responsible for the administration of concentration camps, might I add, Dan, that some of the nastiest ones were right there in Ukraine. Your thoughts?
3: Well, yeah, it's,
2: it's difficult to find a picture of a Ukrainian soldier who is not wearing Ukraine, Nazi insignia. I mean, this stuff is ubiquitous throughout the entire country. The, the, the great scandal is that uh, is the, is the U.S. and NATO in general are engaged in a in an immense cover-up of the extent of Nazi influence. But listen, dozens of of, of Ukrainian cities have put up statues or, pla- or plaques uh, in honor of Stepan Bandera, the World War II pro-Nazi collaborationist leader of a, of the Ukraine. It's just a fact. You can't, you know, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't matter. You can't cover up facts, facts. Are stubborn things, as, uh, as Ronald Reagan once said. Um, you know, so the so the, the the country is permeated with this, and uh, and the armed forces, especially the uh, the militias, are are heavily under the influence of the Azov Battalion. Um, and uh, and 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 you know, and it's so ubiquitous that 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 poor uh, uh, Vladimir Zelensky can't find a single photograph of one of his soldiers who's not out carrying a, uh, uh, a Nazi insignia. You know, I, I, I just saw before there's a, the, uh, a woman named Ekaterina uh, Prokopenko, the wife of Denise Prokopenko, the commander of the Azov Battalion in Mariupol, uh, was meeting with the Pope to try to plead with him to intercede in, his, in her husband's behalf. Um, and uh, to arrange an international rescue, Prokopenko is himself a Nazi, and there's a photograph of, a, of his wife Ekaterina giving a straight arm salute, Hitler-style salute, that's now making its way, you know, on Twitter. You know, so we've got to be aware of the political character of the people the U.S. is aligning itself with. This is not just a a small scattering of rightists this is a major presence.
0: You know, Dan, and there's something even uglier here. It's not that the U.S. is allying with these people. The fact of the matter is that the um, Ukrainian government was more um, independent before the U.S. overthrew the government, and the Nazis had little power in, in the government, and were not integrated into the military. It was after the United States overthrew the government in 2014 and basically took over the country. Joe Biden was effectively the viceroy, governor, whatever the British would call it, when when they had uh, took over countries in their colonial days. But it was after the U.S. took over the country that the Nazis were integrated into the military, that the Nazis rose to real power. So it is... Fairly obvious to me, Dan, that the U.S. intentionally empowered the Nazis because they were anti-Russian. It was, you guys hate Russians. That's fine if you're Nazis. That's wonderful if you're Nazis because Nazis hate, hate Russians. We're going to empower you. We're going to try to turn the whole country into a Nazi country because they hate Russians in the same way that we empowered the Al-Nusra Front and the other groups in Syria. It was the same kind of thing. But here's the truth. These are Nazis. Dan.
2: They are Nazis. They are they are honestly Nazis. I mean, Denise Pro, uh, Prokopenko, the commander of the Azov Battalion in Mariupol, is an honest to god, straight arm saluting Nazi. Just as you know, the, the U.S. you know the U.S. backed Hekmatyar in Afghanistan in the 80s, and he was an honest to god, you know, uh, Islamist terrorist who got his start throwing acid in the face of unveiled co-eds at Kabul University in the 1970s. The U.S. worked arm-in-arm with al-Nusra in Syria in the, uh, in the 20-teens, and now it's working arm-in-arm with Nazis in the Ukraine. There is just no doubt about it. There is no question about it. The evidence is voluminous. And it doesn't matter how much the U.S. tries to blame it on Russian propaganda. Did the Russians hack Zelensky's uh, 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 Twitter feed when that picture of the, uh, <laughs> the Ukrainian soldier with the Nazi emblem uh, cropped up? Is that, is that is that Russia's fault? Russia, Russia, Russia? You know, it's just, it's, it just makes no sense. And it's quite clear that with that – the U.S. is quite clear the kind of forces the U.S. is aligned with here in the
0: Ukraine. I also think in the long term, this is going to be something that will halt, haunt the U.S., and in particular, the Democratic Party for many years, you know, as they, which they so do love to do, call people white supremacists. Remember, they call, said anyone who voted for John, for, for, for for Trump first became, was a deplorable, but then they became a Nazi. So as they call everybody white supremacists, as they call all of their enemies Nazis or whatever the case may be, be, it's going to be difficult in the future to make that argument. I believe that people are me, I can name one people, me, that people are going to continually remind them, wait a minute, Ukraine has been the, the hotbed. You can find article after article where Nazis from all over the world and white supremacists have been traveling to Ukraine under the US power for the last several years, then the the Ukraine actually has an international brigade uh,
2: which um in, uh, now, uh, uh, numbers in the tens of thousands, composed of foreign volunteers, many of which are fascists. So, Ukraine is a kind of is turning into a kind of fascist international. It's the opposite of the Spanish Republic in 1936 to 39, when left-wing international volunteers, you know, you know, flocked to Spain to to fight in behalf of the Republic. Here we have international fascist volunteers flocking to the Ukraine to fight you know, against the Russians, and the result is you'll have tens of thousands of people who are receiving advanced military training, uh, who are you know, who, whose Nazism will, will only intensify as a result of that experience, and then they'll go back home. So the U.S. So the U.S. is helping to create a Nazi uh fifth column uh in 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 much of the world latin america the u.s South, canada europe etc
0: well, the other thing, Dan, is, uh, you know, I'll leave out by saying this, you, I'm, I'm seeing some of the videos of these Nazis and, 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 and some uh, soldiers on the front lines who are becoming increasingly angry at the Ukrainian government, whose wives, some of which may do a little bit of goose stepping and, and, and straight arm saluting themselves, are also angry at the government and they feel deceived while they're thinking they're going to have some insurgency that's going to attack the Russians. They better watch. It, they may have an angry insurgency, uh, an extremely heavily armed insurgency of goose steppers who may set their sights back on their own government saying, You guys, uh, you, uh, you, you, you you know, uh, turns your back on us in our time of need. We've been talking with Dan Lazar, investigative journalist, author of America's Undeclared War. Wherever you find books, you can find Dan's books, and they are good. Trust me. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. More on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Garland Nixon. China has rebuked the U.S. for changing the wording on its website regarding the One China policy. Also, President Xi Jinping has talked with French President Macron about the path to peace in Ukraine. Joining us to discuss this, we have K.J. No. K.J.'s a peace activist, writer, teacher and a friend of the show. K.J., welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. I want to start with this. I find this interesting. Chinese President Xi Jinping on Tuesday held a phone conversation with French President Emmanuel Macron as both sides agreed that that related parties should support Russia and Ukraine to resume peace through negotiations. Here's what I find interesting if I add a little bit of history in here. A couple of things to throw in. Number one, um, the U.S. rattled uh, France's chains with, when they uh, stole a bunch of submarine deals from them with AUKUS. France has a history in that General de Gaulle pulled out of NATO. He recently, Emmanuel Macron won an election, but by the time people were voting, you know, like they voted and then they headed to the streets to um, to push back because they were some so unhappy with him. And Macron's also a guy who has referred to NATO as brain dead. I see France as a possible um hedge, a very, albeit a small one, to U.S., the U.S. move to, um, I was going to say pivot to Asia, but they, they, those neocons aren't even pivoting anymore. they just attacking everybody. But anyway, your thoughts on all the things I'm bringing up with Macron and the history of France and why I think this could be of some value.
4: Yes, I think it's a small opening. It's significant. I'd add two more uh, facts to what you already pointed out, that first, it is correct. I think they still feel very resentful around AUKUS. Uh, We know that Macron is in difficulty. And, you know, France has, over the past years, uh, suffered from, you know, tremendous uh, protests related to a broken social compact, which has to do with the fact that they're trying to implement neoliberalism, which the French uh, do not and will not stand for. You know, they've been endless days of rage. And we're, you know in certain sectors of France, you're looking at a kind of failed state, anarchy uh, from time to time. But the other piece is that Germany is also split and divided. You know the Germans haven't got their stuff together yet, and so France is stepping forward. Uh, and the other piece, and it's, you know as you point out, it's a historical piece. It goes back to De Gaulle, but even before that, you know the French have a beef against. Les Anglo-Saxons, and they don't like the fact that how they've been treated, how they've been given uh, second-class uh, status, uh, and and you know this is a potential for another uh, freedom rights uh, moment, if you will.
0: Yeah, I think that, um, t- to be quite frank, if you look at this thing from ethnicity, that AUKUS was the Anglo-Saxon Empire, the, reconst- the attempted reconstitution of an Anglo-Saxon Empire, leaving out the people like the French and the Germans who aren't, um, you know, who aren't English-speaking nations, that that in in and of itself, it's like when the U.S. and England saw the rise of China, they felt motivated for whatever reason to reconstitute their Anglo-Saxon empire and to and therefore there's no place in it for Germany or France. And I think particularly with Macron wisely seeing what's on the horizon, I think he's looking up saying, man, it's going to be a long, hot summer. Food's going to be high. Gas is going to be high. And these French people are not going to be happy. Possibly he's trying to get out ahead of some of that. What do you think?
4: Absolutely. And there's the other thing that he's facing is that he wants to uh, increase the retirement age. Now, the French have worked hard and, you know, they've had a revolution. And in fact, a couple of them trying to uphold their workers' rights, they will not go gently into that good night when Macron comes at them and tries to take away their worker pensions or makes them work. You know, five years longer than they're used to working, and so there will be massive protests. Macron is trying to get ahead of that, and he knows that his best chance of improving, stimulating the economy is to have good relations with France, uh, with China, because China is the, you know, it's the tide that is lifting all boats. Uh, and and if he can hitch himself, uh, you know, to to China, then he has uh, an outside chance of. Allaying some of this, uh, you know, um, uh, coming impending uh, uh, protest and and I would say, you know, violence as well.
0: And let's add this: June twelfth and June nineteenth, they've got their French parliamentary elections, their ensemble legislative elections, as they as they call them. Jean Luc Mélenchon is certainly has his eyes on the prime ministry, and I think that's going to be of consequence. I think he's trying to at least project an air of competent foreign policy, of a competent and uh, reasonable foreign policy, as opposed to simply being going along. I think he has to somewhat show some independence and sovereignty, whether he'll do it after the elections or not. But I think that's a factor, too. What do you think?
4: Absolutely. Yes, it's definitely a a factor. So uh, certainly domestic politics, domestic pressures and contradictions, uh, as well as some kind of long-lasting you know, historical, um, yeah. you know, uh, resentment as well. All of these are factors, but uh, it's a, it's you know it's promising in the sense that if uh, France, as part of the Eurasian continent, uh, has better relations with uh, China then that opens up space for the other European nations to also go along and that will go a long way in uh, de-escalating some of the tensions that we're seeing on both sides of the Eurasian continent right now
0: yes I agree it does it does provide some political cover for others especially especially with France being probably I would argue the most powerful um, military on the uh, you know behind Russia obviously of, of, of but uh, of West. Eastern Europe. Here's something important: the Philippines, the New Marcos era is starting in the Philippines, and I think the um, the U.S. is not very happy about that because uh, certainly they won't be able to put their missiles in there. And Marcos is going to. I, I would argue he. D- don't get me wrong; I'm not turning him into you know the second coming of Gandhi by any stretch of the imagination, but he seems more inclined to have a reasonable. Um, position towards China. Your thoughts on what that means for China and the U.S. and the, uh, the Pacific nations?
4: Yes, I think it's uh, very true that they will have, uh, you know, good or better relations uh, with China. Uh, certainly, it will be a continuation of the Duterte administration, which was nationalist. And it, uh, uh, you know, kind of sought to steer its own course. Uh, and uh, you know, refuse to be overtly overtly sycophantic uh, to the United States. And the U.S. is not happy about this. They'll certainly bring up Marcos's or Marcos's family's past, and they'll also try and cover up the fact that Marcos senior, uh, you know, was uh, you know total despot because he was a client for the United States. So all of that history will be whitewashed and redone. But. Once again, you know, Marcos is uh, successful largely because he brought on Sara Duterte as his vice president who brought him, you know, the south of Philippines into the uh, voting booth. And I think that this is, um, you know, this is uh, a win for the Philippines. Certainly they can do with a lot of help and trade with China. And it's a loss for the United States. On the one hand, it had... You know, a rising, a new chess piece on the board, a night in South Korea with the uh, uh, election of Yun-Sao-Yar. And now they've, uh, it looks like they may be losing a, a large major piece, uh, on the left, on the West, in the Philippines with uh, Marcos. Certainly, uh, he will not be doing the bidding of what, uh, the, uh, the opposition candidate who had, you know, overtly and openly stated that she would pivot to the United States.
0: Would I be wrong to compare this to the Solomon Islands from this perspective? The Solomon Islands, basically, their argument was, we're poor, you've never helped us, and China's saying they got money and they'll help us build infrastructure and do things that we can't afford to do. That's the direction we're going in. If you, if you look at Marcos, you know, he was said he's going to continue the build, build, build infrastructure program. So he's saying, I want to build infrastructure. The U.S., the only for infrastructure you guys want to build is military bases, which doesn't do me any good. So China is willing to help with infrastructure. And to me, uh, to to add this, it's kind of like Africa and other nations. We're seeing countries say the U.S. wants to bring bombs and bombers, but the Chinese want to bring infrastructure and business. We're going to go with the infrastructure and business. And it's like what the two offer is more is a better option for most countries and that kind of upsets the U.S., but it makes sense. Absolutely. It makes total sense. You know, the Chinese viewpoint
4: of security is mutual, comprehensive, and sustainable security. And it's largely built on win-win cooperation, including trading uh, and mutual development, including Uh, you know, assisting um, countries with building up their infrastructure. They know what the challenges are. They've had to do it themselves. And they're very, very, uh, you know, uh, willing to help, uh, you know, other countries develop their infrastructure. You have to build up an infrastructure. You have to build up, you know, the means of production uh, in order to start to regain wealth and a certain measure of sovereignty. On the other hand, what the U.S. is offering is uh, geostrategic blocks. You know, you're with us. Or against us, and that is the framing that they're bringing to all the ASEAN countries. You know, you have to join us; uh, otherwise, we will make, uh, you know, your your life very difficult for you. It's what John Mearsheimer has said: China is not a threat; the threat is the United States, and the threat is if you don't join with us, uh, you know, your your economy and your your, uh, you know, your governance will be at risk. And so, you know, the, the, certainly the Philippines, certainly the Solomon Islands, uh, all of these countries are seeing the writing on the wall. They're seeing the rising multipolarity. They're hedging their bets and they're deciding that, you know, we have good relations with China. Let's keep it that way. Why should we uh, throw everything, you know, onto the gambling table and, and bet that a losing empire that is becoming more and more uh desperate is the right way to go. I think that's some of the calculations that's going on. Just one other thing is that the U.S. had actually engineered uh, a lawfare case that is a legal warfare against China using the South China Sea and using the Philippines as a pretext. Duterte refused to go along with that rule and refused to use it. And he said, you know, let's just have our own bilateral relations with China. We'll figure things out. Well, that will work out in the long run because China wants to share and develop the South China Sea in a win-win fashion. And that was what, has been, that, that was what had been happening before the U.S. and CISIS became involved and started to try and you know create uh, a schism between the Philippines and China. And so I think we're seeing a reversion to the norm, and uh, hopefully this will signal good things, mutual development, mutual prosperity, or at least the prospect of that for both the Philippines and China.
0: We definitely need to touch on this. China's foreign ministry on Tuesday slammed the United States for changing the wording on the State Department website about Taiwan, saying political manipulation will not succeed in changing the status quo over the island.
4: Well, you know, garland, this was so mystifying and and absurd when when I and others saw it. You know, this was changed over a few days, but this is the public facing statement of the United States towards China and Taiwan. And to change that surreptitiously, to take out the language that there is only uh, one China and that the PRC is the legitimate government and that Taiwan is a province of China, to get rid of all of that and to replace it with, the, you know, the six uh, assurances and the TRA uh, and the three communiques in a generic statement, that is a huge change. And it's as if, you know, you were married to somebody and instead of formally notifying them of a divorce or an impending divorce or a separation, you decided to change your status on your social media profile from you know married to single or etc i mean this would be extraordinary and it would be extraordinary foolish to think that the other person a wouldn't notice it and b that that is the way to do this kind of communication but more than that it signals that the us is going uh, it's ratcheting up it's going down this one way route towards uh, recognition of Taiwan and, and a kind of complete abandonment of the three communiques and the one China policy. China is not happy about this. They have made their, uh, you know, dissatisfaction known. And I think this is just one more a turn of the ratchet towards uh, escalation and triggering war uh, with China over Taiwan. Very, very bad move and also very, very bad form in the manner that they did
0: this. Thank you very much. We've been talking with K.J. No, peace activist, writer, and teacher. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. More on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. The House of Representatives have passed a $40 billion bill with additional aid for the Ukraine military crisis. Also, President Biden has revived the World War II-era Lend-Lease program for Ukraine, creating a debt that will likely never be paid. Joining us now to discuss this, we have Nick Davies. He's a peace activist and author of Blood on Our Hands, the American Invasion of Iraq. Nick, welcome back to the Critical Hour. Yeah. Hi, Carlin. Thanks for having me again. On Tuesday night, the House passed a nearly $40 billion bill for new Ukraine aid as Washington continues to escalate its role in supporting Kiev in its war against Moscow. The measure passed in a vote of 368 to 57, the, with only Republicans voting against the bill. The interesting thing about it, Nick, is the Republicans voted against it because they wanted to add an extra $8 billion. Your, your thoughts on this, uh, Nick Davies?
3: Yeah, this is, you know, it seems to me that um, Washington, Congress, uh, the administration, and to some extent, and certainly the corporate media, and um, I suppose to some extent the American people, um, are really just living in a kind of war psychosis right now, um, in which, um, you know, things that that really you, you know any anyone objectively rationally would say should just be completely off the table completely unacceptable um such as war with russia <laughs> are um you know have, have sort of you know j- j- just just gradually become um uh, almost normal normalized um and you know this 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 is just shockingly shockingly dangerous um, at what point you know russia has certainly is one of its top priorities for its uh, air force in ukraine is destroying as many of these weapons as it possibly can before they get to the front lines of the war and it seems to be somewhat successful in doing that um we're, we're, which really just sort of reduces this to just, you know, almost a cartoon of 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 the military-industrial complex that we are. They are manufacturing weapons. Um, Congress is paying them for them to the tune of tens of billions of dollars, and they are shipping them to Ukraine so that Russia can uh, blow them up. Um, you know this this and. Um, there is really, seems to be no, um, no alternative from the U.S. point of view but to just keep escalating this, to keep, you know, so if they blow up the uh, $10 billion of weapons we already sent, well, so we'll send another 20. And um, this is sheer insanity. I mean, uh, um, I saw something this morning about you know, just the rise in, in poverty in in the US, um, you know, through COVID and and just the the complete um, you know, to just uh just degradation of any kind of social safety net in this country. And um you know, and then and then <laughs> we're risk and then they're they're ready to risk uh in nuclear war because at some point I mean if i mean we're, we're, we're damned if we do and damned if we don't here because if the weapons get through and they succeed in really putting the screws to Russia you know then I mean russia is explicitly is explicitly has a policy that in that situation they would use nuclear weapons on the other hand if if the weapons don't get through um then, um, yeah, then, then it is just a cartoonish way to support the military-industrial complex.
0: Um, you know, when you get back to what this is all about, here's the great contradiction. NATO was ostensibly put in place to protect Europe— Right. To create peace and stability between Europe and Russia, it was supposed to be a defensive mechanism to so that the Europeans wouldn't have to worry about being attacked by the Russians. Right. And uh, I'm not saying what it was created for. I'm saying what the rhetoric was. The rhetoric was it was there to create uh, a defensive. In reality, it moved up to Russia's border. Russia says, hey, you're crowding us. Get off our border and basically ask for diplomatic uh, discussion and NATO basically said no diplomatic discussions happening here. We're going to continue to get armed closer and closer to your border. Russia is now acting in what I believe is a de- somewhat defensive manner. We sure as heck would on our border. And now this NATO that's supposed to be bringing peace, it, which is nothing but a tool for the U.S., is doing everything it can to increase instability and war on the border of of, of Europe. Your thoughts?
3: Well, yeah, I, I I would start by saying that um, as the first Secretary General of NATO, a British guy called Lord Ismay said, the purpose of NATO is to keep the Americans in, the Russians out, and the Germans down. And so, um, y- you know, it was it was partly to prevent. Keep America involved in in europe um you know with all kinds of huge military bases all over the continent um, but also also uh y- you know the the purpose was to to in fact put Europe on the front line of um a potential war with Russia you know by having Two huge military alliances facing off across this iron curtain, you know coming down right across europe um, it, really that you know that that was that was a tricky part of of the u s war policy to you know to to keep it all over there and um you know instead of instead of confronting Russia. Uh, you know, across, uh, the Bering Straits from Alaska to Siberia, or, you know, the places where it would impact more directly on the United States. Um, and, but, but really, I mean, you know, I mean, the, the way, uh, the way our leaders squandered the so-called peace dividend at the end of the Cold War is really just one of the great tragedies of, of, of our entire era, really, because um yes, after you know, all these justifications for all all that war and military spending throughout the Cold War, you know, the Vietnam War, the Korean War, uh wars in Central America, wars in Africa, um and then finally, 1991, thanks really almost entirely to Mr. Gorbachev, you know, who who basically made the U.S. an offer it couldn't refuse, to say, you know, well, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna dismantle the Warsaw Pact, we're gonna we're gonna disarm, and um, <laughs> and you know, the whole you know, the whole world. Can, can breathe easy now that, you know, there's not going to be a war between the United States and the Soviet Union. And instead, what did, what did the U S do? I mean, to, 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 to keep Germany down to, to stop Europe becoming an independent, um, pole in a multipolar world. Um, you know it it it, re, it expanded nato as you said right up to the borders of russia and why would russia not why would russia not be afraid why would russia not see that as as a threat um you know and at the same time nato which had not actually fought a war <laughs> throughout the cold war you know nato was not involved in vietnam uh Korea was, well, NATO hadn't exactly come together at that point, and it was all, the war was fought supposedly un, under the authority of the UN. But so then, once the Cold War that justified NATO's existence was over, all of a sudden NATO was fighting wars. It was fighting a war in Yugoslavia. It was bombing, bombing Belgrade, bombing Serbia and uh, invading Kosovo. Then, you know, in um, after, after 9-11, NATO explicitly for the first time said that because the U.S. was quote-unquote attacked, not by any other country, you know, the collective defense required NATO to invade Afghanistan. Then we had Libya. So, I mean... NATO has now committed aggression on three different continents, um, and it has moved right up to the borders of Russia. So really...
0: And can't we say that the truth is this, that there really is no NATO... That NATO is just another tool or an expression of the United States Empire. It's a way for the U.S. Empire to bring all of its vassal colonies in the Europe on the European continent together in one spot and to pretend that they have sovereignty and they've all decided to come together. So now they just say yes, the U.S. is going to do it, and NATO, which just lumps them all together in one one umbrella. Uh, I mean, do you think I'm wrong in making that argument?
3: Um. Yeah. It is absolutely an instrument of, of U.S. imperialism, um, and it's a—it's clearly a calculation for all the other countries involved. I mean, the U.K. is, I would say, joined at the hip with the Pentagon in terms of this stuff, as it always has been. You know, Vietnam was was one exception where where the British did not, you know, just, just march in right behind the Americans. But um, but for a lot of those other European countries, you know, this none of this is what their people want. I mean, if you look at opinion polls by, you know, the European Council on Foreign Relations, for instance, um, you know, around the time that Biden took office, they asked people all over europe you know if if they would join the us in a war against russia or china and um only i think it was about 22 23% of people said that they thought their country should do that but you know so nato is a is a clever way of, of undermining Um, the sovereignty and the independence and the self-determination of all these countries in Europe, because then all of a sudden, you know, they've got some defense minister or somebody coming to a NATO meeting in Brussels and, and, you know, and they all agree that no NATO has to support, you know, this war in Ukraine or, or whatever it happens to be. And, um, you know, and, so, 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 the as you say, the independence, these the the independence that all these countries in Europe are supposed to enjoy, and 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 you know which their people take very seriously, um, is completely undermined by, um, you know, by by their being corralled together in this U.S.-led military alliance.
0: Yes and and I would uh, you know say that it, th- there there's two so-called organizations in the EU that simply are granting the power of attorney for the European continent to the U.S. The E.U. gives the U.S. power of attorney over their economics and NATO gives the U.S. power of attorney over their foreign policy. And anything else is a joke. The idea that they're making their own decisions is very, very obvious. Thank you very much, Nick Davies. Nicholas Davies is a peace activist and author of a great book. It's called Blood on Our Hands, The American Invasion of Iraq. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. More on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. The U.N. has received credible evidence of war crimes involving Ukrainian troops torturing Russian POWs. Also, the EU considers stealing more Russian foreign assets. Joining us, to discover, uh, joining us for these stories, we have Scott Ritter, former U.N. weapons inspector in Iraq and author, writer and all around smart guy. Scott, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Oh, Thanks for having me. Um, One of the things I think it's interesting, you know, we talk about uh, what's going on there. Certainly there's the propaganda, you know, whether it's uh, the uh, unmentionable suburb of Kiev or there's going to be. I I remember there was one a few weeks ago where three or four Nazis in Mariupol said they touched a poisonous. they, They had a poisonous substance that made them feel bad. And there was an argument. Is it weapons of mass destruction? All of that we hear all the time. But there's. A lot of evidence out of Ukrainians um torturing POWs, murdering, shooting in the legs of POWs, and now even the Hill has to come out and say, well, the UN's got some credible information. I'm sure they weren't thrilled about that, Scott Ritter.
5: No, I mean look, the, the West has been, you know, painting a consistent uh if fact free narrative uh that, you know, Russia is Perpetrating, um, you know, war crimes on a scale uh, not witnessed since the end of the Second World War, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, and 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 the reality is the the only hard documentation of actual war crimes that exists uh, deals with you know Ukrainian treatment of Russian prisoners of war. I mean, that that that's just the bottom line. There is no fact. There is no evidence of Russian war crimes. Um, It's just speculation. It's uh, hyperbole. It's manufactured information that's uh, put out, you know, evidence-free. But, you know, when it comes to Ukraine, uh, we not only have evidence that they are torturing, murdering, abusing Russian prisoners of war. uh, As The Washington Post noted, um, they're they're, they're, they're carrying out a continuous war crime in their use of human shields um, uh, as part of their uh, defensive strategy that is to dig in their military forces in residential areas um, of, of Ukrainian cities and towns and insist that the civilian population remain. So they're turning the residential areas into legitimate military targets and they're using the civilian population as a shield in an effort to uh, deter you know, Russian military action. Uh, so you know, these are all well-documented uh, cases. And um, if there ever was to be an international tribunal pursuing war crimes, um, as we speak, the only people that could be successfully brought to trial would be the Ukrainians.
0: In Orinoco Tribune, Fra Hughes writes, the guilty must be punished, the innocent must have justice, the dead must be remembered, and the living must be held to account. Why we need war crime tribunals in Donbass. But one of the particular things I'd like to ask you about is this. I've seen video of some particular, of uh, some British mercenaries, I guess is the only term, the, who have been caught. And it's interesting, after they get caught, you know, they were only the cook or the mop-up guy or, you know, they're carrying ammunition. When they get caught, none of them in any way were involved in any offensive uh, military capabilities or activities and they're like I just want to go home can somebody make a uh, you know a deal and I, and I'm like yeah you went to war you kind of knew how that ended up and you weren't a soldier operating defending your homeland or whatever you went to another country a whatever happens in a war trial I don't think they have protection I may be wrong under international law and number two in Donetsk I mean these are people who lost 14,000 civilian mostly civilians over four over four five six seven years I don't think they're going to be real happy about giving these guys the kind of disposition that they would be, that they would, that they are asking for. Anyway, uh, your thoughts, Scott.
5: Well, first of all, let's just start with um, what I believe to be an absolute statement of reality. There will be no international war crimes tribunal ever. There is no court of jurisdiction. Um, Neither Ukraine nor Russia uh, is a is a member of any any such jurisdiction. And uh, it is virtually impossible for meaningful investigations to take place. Where there will be a tribunal is in Russia or you know, in, in the Donbass, um, where the um, U- Ukrainians who are captured by Russia, you know, they're all being carefully screened for their history, uh, their potential to have been employed in uh, combat operations since 2014 against um, Russian speakers in, in, in Donbass. Uh, in their complicity in any, uh, you know, criminal activity, war crimes activity that took place. You know, there's several several kinds of prisoners out there. I've seen two British um, prisoners of war who were serving with the 36th Marine Brigade. Uh, Both of these men had Ukrainian wives. Both men had lived in Ukraine for a significant period of time and had uh, if not taking Ukrainian citizenship, at least had Ukrainian passports. I believe that um, any any fair tribunal will, will treat these men as legitimate prisoners of war. These, the, these guys are differentiated from uh, members of the so-called International Legion, uh, the, the adventurers who come over. Uh, and although they sign a contract where they're ostensibly paid $600 a month by the Ukrainian government, uh, Although we know by the uh, Lend-Lease Act being uh, debated by Congress, it's the U.S. government that's paying them. Um, And they've been issued a Geneva card. Um, The international humanitarian law on this one is is quite clear. Uh, The the, the determination of their status as a legitimate uh, combatant will be determined by the Russians, who have already said they're not. And these guys will be prosecuted as criminals not president of war. Uh, and this is just a statement of, of reality. Uh, there will be no international tribunal. There will be a Russian military tribunal. And all mercenaries, all non-legitimate um, Ukrainian military personnel, to include members of the Azov Regiment, which the Russians don't recognize as a legitimate um, extension of the Ukrainian military, will be prosecuted as war criminals uh, who, who lack any standing under the Geneva Convention
0: yeah I, I think you are you you're correct and 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 let's not forget what's the u.s. going to say? We came up with a designation of enemy combatants. And under the, our designation, you have no rights whatsoever, no constitutional rights, no legal rights. You can be taken off to um, even if you're an American citizen as an enemy combatant under Obama. We came up with that designation. Doesn't matter. You're stripped of your constitutional rights. So it's going to be hard for an argument for the U.S. to make an argument or any of the U.S. allies to make an argument that the Russians can't designate them enemy combatants or whatever they determine and dispense with them as they see fit. Let me ask you this. Well, if we turn on the news, we hear that the Russians are on the ropes and there, boy, the Ukrainians are launching counteroffensives and oh, the Russians are struggling right now with the mighty and valiant uh, Ukrainian uh, military. What do we need to know? What's happening in Donbass? How do you see the current state of affairs?
5: Well, I mean, it's, it's clear that Russia is carrying out a very deliberate um, offensive in the Donbass which is designed to create a cauldron, an encirclement of a significant number of uh, Ukrainian troops. It's also clear that both in the north and south, Russia has uh, penetrated um, to the totality of its depth a very extensive Ukrainian fortification belt. I don't think uh, people in the West understand uh, what exists on the ground in Ukraine? You know, you keep hearing Western uh, observers say talk about the the open fields of of the Donbas tank country. Well, maybe, except that for eight years, Ukrainians have built an extensive uh, belt of uh, of concrete uh, reinforced trenches, concrete bunkers. In depth with supporting fire positions, and um, th- these these defenses have to. And these defenses oftentimes are linked through villages, meaning they they extend through the village, so the the homes and and, and everything in the village are incorporated as part of this defensive belt. Um, this has to be eliminated, uh, punched through uh, before you can get into this open warfare. And uh, Russia has been doing this very deliberately, and they've succeeded both. In the south and the north to punch through, they're now in the process of rolling up these defensive lines to create a, um, a, a a breach point sufficient to 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 you know handle the transition or the transit of mobile forces, which I think will be uh, something we're going to see in the days, if not weeks ahead. Um, while this is taking place, the Ukrainian military um, has conducted extensive counterattacks in the north, in the Kharkov uh, region. You know, the the Russians have concentrated. We we should never forget that Russia started this fight with 200,000 men, and they have roughly that number uh, in place today. That's not a lot of people, um, and Russia's fighting on an 800-mile front, Um, And so there's areas where Russia has concentrated considerable combat power, and there's areas where Russia has put forward a screening force. Um, And where these screening forces exist, uh, the Ukrainians have attempted several counterattacks, which have caused the Russians to pull back uh, to create a more defensible space um, to to hold the Ukrainians in place. Uh, There has been no major Ukrainian breakthrough. Uh, I think the Ukrainian goal of you know, creating a situation that would require Russia to divert forces away from its you know primary objective has not, in fact, occurred. Uh, I think the screening forces are holding. Uh, but the bottom line is, it's a race against time. I, I, I think the Russians are going to win this race. They're going to roll up the Ukrainian forces in the center, and then. Um, those counterattacking forces are in, at risk of finding themselves being cut off in the rear by, uh, by you know, Russian forces now uh, moving forward. It's, it's a very fluid situation. Um, never forget that the Ukrainian military, A, was very large, 260,000 regular troops, hundreds of thousands of reservists, uh, well-equipped, well-led, um, well-motivated. And um, if you make a mistake, um, you know, they will slap you, and they will slap you hard. But tactical victories do not automatically translate into strategic outcomes. I believe that the Russians are not only achieving significant tactical victories on the battlefield, they're going to achieve their strategic outcome. The big danger here, though, is that with 200,000 troops, even once the Russians achieve their objectives in the Donbass, um, there's a limit to what they can do afterwards. They probably will be able to go on through Odessa and maybe link up with Transnistria in the south. But with 200,000 troops, they won't be able to control this large band and carry out offensive operations, ground operations into the center of uh, Ukraine or western Ukraine. And we now have a situation where tens of billions of dollars of advanced weaponry are being provided to the Ukrainian military. Um, And if Ukrainians hold some of these forces in reserve, and are able to reconstitute entire armored brigades supported with artillery and armored fighting vehicles with a reconstituted air force, uh, again, because dozens of combat aircraft are being provided, um, you know, we could run into a situation where there is a, a strategic stalemate, um, and then the long-term Western objective of bleeding Russia dry uh, could become a reality. So even though Russia is achieving its goals and objectives for its special military operation, um, I think the scenario in, in Ukraine is transitioned into general war. It's a proxy war between NATO and Russia, with the Ukrainian army being used as the foil. And uh, if Russia doesn't adapt to this new reality by mobilizing additional forces, uh, they could find themselves in a, in, 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 a, in a fix later on this summer. And I, I think the Russians are aware of this, and I think we are going to see... Uh, Some sort of action by the Russians in the near future uh, that reflects this reality, especially if, um, as expected tomorrow, uh, Finland and Sweden announce that they intend to join NATO. If that happens, um, I think Russia will have no choice but to enter into a general mobilization, declare a formal state of war with Ukraine and prepare for combat operations against uh, Finland and Sweden.
0: I think the other thing, though, is it has to be unanimous in order to allow Finland and Sweden into NATO. And I think NATO is going to have a trouble. getting. I, I don't know how they get around that one, but I think there's a couple of countries that aren't going to be so thrilled about that. So that's the that's a, a saving grace. But thanks a lot, Scott. Certainly appreciate it. We've been talking with Scott Ritter. He's a former U.N. weapons inspector in Iraq. You can find him all over the place on YouTube and and all over. He's doing a lot of interviews these days. You're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. More on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to the critical hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. The latest moves by the U.S. empire and its EU colonies make it clear that they intend to prolong the Ukraine crisis, costing many many thousands of lives and billions of dollars in destruction. Joining us to discuss this and other issues, we have Margaret Kimberly. She's an editor and senior columnist at Black Agenda Report and author of Presidential, Black America and the Presidents. Margaret, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thank you so much. So let's start with this. Last Friday, uh, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson spoke with French President Emmanuel Macron and said that he urged Ukraine against negotiating with Russia. It seems fairly obvious that the move by the U.S. empire and its vassals is to cost as many Ukrainian and Russian lives as they possibly can and to turn Ukraine into the ultimate killing field. Margaret.
6: Yeah, they want to fight to the last Ukrainian. Um, It's the only thing that makes sense is for ukraine to talk to uh to russia that m- the only thing that makes sense is for the us and nato to talk to russia but they're committed to doing as the a- The secretary of defense said to weakening Russia, which by the way, they can't do, assuming that's uh, something they would have any right to do. It is not something that they are able to do. Uh, Sanctions aren't hurting Russia that much, but they're hurting the rest of the world as fuel prices and food prices um, uh, rise and, and cause great hardship to people everywhere. Militarily, Ukraine is, it is Cannot win. Uh, Russia is winning. I have never seen so many lies told in corporate media as I've seen in the last few months. Russia has a bigger, better equipped army, more men, and and it shows on the battlefield. So Ukraine is in this no-win position But Ukraine is also a vassal of the U.S. The U.S. is calling the shots. And I'm sure Boris Johnson didn't uh, fly over there without Joe Biden knowing it. But it's a it's a great tragedy all this talk of standing with Ukraine is phony. The best way to stand with Ukraine is to encourage peace talks because wars can also end with talks as well as with a military victory.
0: According to a report from Ukraine's Pravda, citing sources close to Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, Johnson told the Ukrainian leader during his visit that the Russian uh, pre- uh, president should be pressured, not negotiated with. They go on to say that the collective West, which now feels Putin is not as Strong As they thought, see the war as an opportunity to press him. What a sinister and a way of viewing the world. And here's what it makes obvious, I think, uh, Mark, I'd like to get you to comment on this. NATO was ostensibly put forth as the guarantor of peace in Europe. They were there to protect the Western Europe from the evil Russia and to make everything stable. And now we see that the allegations and assertions of Vladimir Putin are correct. NATO is an offensive uh, military operation, and they did intend on taking Russia out, breaking it up and stealing all their natural resources. And it's obvious because Russia is now saying, has been saying, can we get a diplomatic end? And they say no. And once the war starts, they're like, yes, let's keep this war going. We can. Uh, all the Ukrainians will probably die. OK, fair enough. But the good thing is we think Russia might be we- weaker. Margaret. <laughs> yes, it's, I, I think it's, you're absolutely right. It's,
6: it's, it's disgraceful. And everyone wants to call Putin a war criminal. Um First of all, American presidents can be called war criminals, but a war crime is being committed now against the people of Ukraine, and it's by uh, those forces who claim to care about that country. You're not going to weaken Russia. You're not going to get rid of Putin. These are all fantasies. We have this fantasy foreign policy, and they don't, it's clear they don't have a plan B. Their uh, plan to uh, to weaken Russia with sanctions, to kill the Nord Stream 2 pipeline has come at a great, uh, great cost, a great price that's being paid by people who can least afford it all over the world. But they don't have a plan B. And it doesn't matter, apparently, how badly this goes. They are not going to look at any other options uh, aside from this losing options which means a loss of life and the destruction of a country because Ukraine is destroyed um, uh, Russia's not going to leave Ukraine. Why would they leave Ukraine? So now the country is divided. They're getting everything they did not want, and it's because of the U.S. and NATO, which is an um, an aggressive force.
0: The other thing is there's an obvious contradiction. What we were told is Russia has invaded an independent, sovereign, sovereign, and democratic nation which should be able to choose their own alliances and make their own decisions. And now we're told we're going to make sure, we're going to take... Tell this independent, sovereign nation that they can't get peace. We're going to go tell them what they should and shouldn't do, and we're going to use this independent, sovereign nation as a battering ram to weaken Russia. I find it a, a very strong contradiction between the terms independent and sovereignty and what we see going on now, Margaret.
6: Oh, absolutely. Ukraine lost its sovereignty in 2014 with the help of the U.S., which took sides in uh, an ongoing dispute there. They sided with the right wing, helped to overthrow an elected president. Um, and uh, Ukraine became a de facto U.S. colony at that point, and that was the beginning of the ruin of that country. They've had an ongoing civil war. It's the poorest country in Europe. It has not prospered. It isn't a democracy. Uh, Zelensky has... Um, has jailed opponents. He's closed down newspapers and TV stations that don't support him. So nothing um, that we've been told about Ukraine is
0: true. Ted Snyder at AntiWar.com writes, Joe Biden promised the world that he was opening a new era of relentless diplomacy. Either those words, those were just words, or Biden had lost control of his foreign policy. You are what your fo- foreign policy teams, team says you are, and his foreign policy team says that he's a neocon. But it's history. You also also what your record says you are. And his record says that he's a warmonger. Your thoughts on Joe Biden. I mean, they go country by they talk about Russia, Iran, Cuba, Venezuela, North Korea, on and on. Joe Biden has no thoughts of of, of, of diplomacy other than threatening and gangster diplomacy. Margaret.
6: Oh, absolutely. And this is part of a longer trend where diplomacy is dead. Uh, This belief that the U.S. should and can control the whole world has been the driver of U.S. foreign policy for a very long time. It's very unfortunate. And despite his promises during his campaign, I guess none of Joe Biden's promises were worth anything uh, to uh, return to diplomacy because they know that's what people want. They've done just the opposite. So during the Obama administration, they got the um, nuclear deal with Iran. Trump threw it away, and Biden is following Trump and has done nothing to resurrect uh, that agreement, which would do the world a great deal of good. They've continued this fantasy that, you know, some guy they plucked from nowhere is really the president of Venezuela, um, uh, not returning to any of those nuclear agreements that the U.S. has had for decades with Russia. And now with Ukraine, they're, at, they're undoing diplomacy. So Ukraine did what it should have done and started talking with Russia, and they were told in no uncertain terms that they should not do it. Uh, and this is a disaster. It's a disaster for, um, for the uh, entire world. And I never thought, I was never a fan of Joe Biden, ever. Uh, I did not vote for him. I'm proud to say, but this is a bigger disaster than even I thought. Despite my lack of respect for him, his foreign policy team are amateurs. They are n- none of them are very smart. Biden is not well, and none of this bodes well for uh, our country or for the rest of the world.
0: Well, here's what I would say, Margaret. Diplomacy is incompatible with empire, especially an empire that's crumbling and is trying to hold on to a, to, you know, a, a, a unipolar moment that is over. That, that's what we're looking at. And to me, one of the, the, the glaring examples is Latin America, places which you've been, which the U.S. did in every horrible thing you could, you could think of over the last couple of centuries. Countries to hold on to power, murdering people, overthrowing countries and bit by bit the people have held on they now have are taking control of their government with Lula with uh, in Brazil with on the move, with uh, um, um, moves now in Colombia the U.S may may make likely lose that. So I, and you as, as you know, Nicaragua, I think that's an example of how things are changing in this world, Margaret.
6: Yes, but uh, they want things to be done the the same old way. So the Summit of the Americas, the U.S. is hosting in uh, about a month, and um, said they're not inviting Cuba, Nicaragua, and Venezuela, all of which are in the Americas. So I guess they need to change the title from Summit of the Americas to Summit of the Americas, but only if we like you. Um, and our country's threatening to boycott, and I hope they make good on those threats. Because and it is rather awkward because the U.S. has sanctioned the leaders of these countries. Um, uh, Maduro has been sanctioned. Uh, um, Ortega and, and Nicaragua and even their wives have been sanctioned. It's it's quite insane. So I guess it would be awkward to try to do those things and then invite them to this meeting. But that just shows you that they need to dial it back. They need to see a new way. is uh, another example of Biden going along with Trump. Um, uh, Obama restored diplomatic relations with Cuba. Trump... Uh, uh, tried to undo that as much as possible, and what does Biden do? He follows right along. So uh, all this talk of sovereign nations um, is um, is phony. Any country, sovereign country, that wants to do what the U.S. doesn't like is treated like a pariah, sanctioned. They impoverish people, literally kill people uh, with um, these sanctions uh, uh, policies. So this is also the end of diplomacy. It's not even – they don't even go through the motions, but you're absolutely right – uh, as the empire actually weakens, they will grow more desperate. They will be less willing to talk, less willing to do all of the things that they in fact need
0: to do. And the the, the Democratic Party is the monster here. And if the Republicans get in, po- in power, they'll be the, the the same monster. I did want to ask you about this real quick, Nina Turner. But when, when she ran, I thought to myself, is she out of her mind? What's this about? The party has moved on. It's a warmongering, um, proto-fascist. Party, and you still have these people trying to pretend like there's some kind of a squad or there's some kind of left flank in the party. Uh, It's absurd to me. Um, What's your thoughts on that?
6: Well, you're absolutely right. These, you know, uh, so-called progressive Democrats need to leave the party. Uh, You see what the supposed progressives have done. They said nothing about any of the issues we've discussed. There has been the only pushback on Ukraine policy, for example, has come from Republicans. And it's a handful of people who are considered the lesser lights of the Republican Party, to be honest. But uh, I'm not going to uh, go along with this horrible, dangerous policy because Marjorie Taylor Greene says that uh, our money should be sent here. That happens to be true. And the squad and the progressive caucus, they're all phony. None of them has pushed back on this Ukraine policy. The 33 billion that we were last week, it was 33 billion for Ukraine. This week, it's $40 billion, which I'm sure was the plan all along. They soften you up with 33, and then say, oh, actually, it's $7 billion uh, more. They have abdicated their responsibilities, um, the members of both parties, uh, at this very, very dangerous moment. And I'm feeling like it's dangerous because of the U.S. and not because of uh, Vladimir Putin. But Nina Turner and people like her, um, they need to just leave the party. And on the other hand, even if they did get in, what guarantee do we have that they wouldn't end up like the rest of them?
0: You're right. And the, the most we get from is tweets, uh, a strongly worded tweet. And in the midst of some horrible thing that the empire is doing, we like invade some country and we kill a bunch of people. And they they'll give us a tweet that says... Wouldn't it be great if we had Medicare for all? They won't even touch the empire. And even the ones that vote against some horrific thing that the empire is doing, send in another 40 billion of Nazis or whatever, they don't have a press conference afterwards and say this is terrible. They just quietly retreat and then they go back and they tweet something about wouldn't it be great if we had something that they know sure as heck we can't get because their party is going to do everything they can to block it and, of course, blame it on Joe Manchin. Margaret Kimberly is the editor and senior columnist at Black Agenda Report author of prejudential Black America Black America and the president's Margaret thank you very much
6: Thank you Garland
0: You're listening to the critical hour on radio Sputnik I'm Garland Nixon there's more on the other side stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. In what may be interpreted as a cover-up, Hunter Biden seems poised to pay a substantial financial settlement with the Department of Justice. Also, the Ukraine crisis may be the inevitable end stage of the Russia Gate operation. Joining us now to discuss these stories, we have Jim Cavanaugh. He's a writer at thepolemicist.net and Counterpunch. Jim, welcome back to The Critical Hour.
7: Thanks for having me, Garland.
0: Let's start with Hunter Biden. You know, it certainly appears, you know, there's been a lot of smoke. It's hard to believe there's no fire and when smoke with uh, with uh, Hunter Biden. There's a lot of jokes we can make there. But the point is, it certainly we're starting to hear some what appears to me we're getting tuned up for something. Rather than Hunter Biden ending up in the who scale, it sounds like he may reach a quote settlement. And we already know he's got like very, very rich lawyers with deep pockets paying two million dollars in back taxes and paying his bills. I don't imagine it'll be hard for him to sell a painting or two and and, and pay a significant settlement or fine with the Department of Justice. Your thoughts on all of that, uh, Jim Cavanaugh?
7: Yeah, I mean, it's likely to be well, look, I don't know. You know, uh, it's a financial crime. It's financial shenanigans. You know, usually, often, very often, these things end up with fines. It'd have to be a big fine. He does have backup on this. He's also got some kind of Hollywood lawyer, I read about this, who actually gave him money to pay off his delinquent taxes to avoid that that charge. And this guy... Apparently he wants to be very up very go on the offensive and counterattack, and some of the D.C. lawyers are more let's let's be very careful and do this step by step with the Justice Department. So there's all kinds of games that are being played in that respect. You know, at the end of the day, I don't think we're anybody's very interested in the fate of Hunter Biden, (laughs) Uh, whether he pays you know a a hefty fine or whether he goes to jail for a year or he's not going to be he's not going to get a 20 year sentence. I don't think this is not a it's not exactly a, a a charge of blackmail or extortion or stealing money from a company. It's just it's going to be some kind of grift. The real issue is what's going to happen when the Republicans take the House of Congress and they bring him up and they bring him up to testify there and they start asking him questions about his father and about what did you mean when you say you're giving half the, half of all the money you made to your father? You know, does that mean half of this money that came from Ukraine? That's going to be the interesting uh, drama that we're going to see play out uh, probably on national television come the end
2: of the year.
0: You know, I tend to think this, and we see this at times, there are times when people are not touchable because of the depth of corruption that they're involved in. We have seen significant allegations of of, of Hunter Biden's uh, company being involved in the Transport of money and deals regarding the bio research labs in Ukraine. And, you know, as you see this, you start to realize that this guy had his fingers in the everywhere that basically he was all over the place getting money. And might I add. That I don't think he's. You know, we look. Pelosi's kids were there. Uh, Romney's were there. There was all of these people making money in Ukraine. So I think part of it is yes, he is the president's son, but the 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 leaders of our country, both in both parties are so involved in corruption now that anyone like Hunter Biden is so interconnected with so much corruption, they can't really touch him because that's what they're all doing. That's the way this system works now. That Corruption is endemic and any one person could spill the beans on all of them. Your thoughts, Jim?
7: Yeah, it it is true. We have a system of essentially deferred bribery with the Congress and the presidency. I mean, you know, when uh, Obama got in front of the banksters and said, I'm standing between you and the pitchforks and bailed them out, he knew what was coming for him after he left the office and it came and he's now a nine figure, uh, you know, hundred millionaire. And that wasn't, you know, hard work or, you know, I, what, what was it? <laughs> you know, he gets paid a million dollars to show up for a speech. He gets paid. You know, They, they buy his books. I just saw a thing the other day. Someone did, plotted out a graph of, you know, mimicking the trading of Congress people. What their stock, what what their stock portfolio would look like versus the S and P 500. You know, and if you if, you, if it mimics the, 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 mimicking the trading of Congress people, your part, stock portfolio goes way up. So this is all endemic. To the country and to the this is the business model of American politics, which is a business a large to a large extent and Biden, Biden, is, one of, Biden is one of the kids of that, and they're all doing it and you know swimming in those Borders.
0: It's one way, somewhere or another. New York Post is reporting DHS disinformation czar Jankowicz pushed Trump Russia claims at center of Durham case. Um, If the Biden administration is so concerned about disinformation, it may want to take a look at its own czar, Nina Jankowicz. What we find is all of the shady, all of these shady allegations that were coming out of the Clinton camp, and might I add, they were circulating from the Clinton camp to their lawyers, to Christopher Steele, to Christopher Steele's um, uh, uh, sources and back to Christopher Steele. That at the time all of this was going on, Nina Jankovic was one of the people who basically was promoting the latest thing about Russia and Trump. It didn't appear to matter what it was when she got up in the morning and somebody said, blank, 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 something, something, Russia, something, something, Trump. She said, oh, my God, look what we got here, more something, something, Russia, Trump, and tweeted it out that she was part, very part and parcel of a disinformation operation. Your thoughts, Jen?
7: Yeah, I think she was, I'll say, a naive consumer and an amplifier of the various Russiagate stuff that was going around. You know, she's one of, and she still is, she still believes it. You know, she's one of these people who heard the stories about uh, the Steele dossier or the Alpha Bank thing and Trump and yeah, and uh, meeting with uh, Russian lawyers and blah 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 blah, and repeated them and amplified them on Twitter and on her own little you know uh, web page and her own little theatrical performances and her Mary Poppins stuff. So that got her a reputation in the Democratic Party, and probably connected to somebody in some other way. That got her reputation in the Democratic Party that they think. I mean, they're in such a bubble that they really think this provides qualification (laughs) for for whatever it is that you're
6: supposed
7: to be doing. I know. yeah, In their minds, it does.
0: Let me put to you this, Jim. Jim, I'll tell you why. uh, Let me throw this at you, why I think it does. I don't think she was naive. I think she understood the game. And the game is this. It doesn't matter if it's true. It's not a lie and it's not the truth. Language is to these people is used as a tool, as a means to an end. If it happens to be true, that's fine. If it happens not to be true, that's fine. Once they establish a narrative and the narrative was Trump something, something Russia, Putin, anything that came out, they all knew as soon as you hear it. Boom, it's green light. Get it out there. It didn't matter whether it was true. They didn't have to vet it. They didn't care. And they also knew that anybody who opposed that narrative had to be attacked and taken to pieces. So I would argue that's why she's here, not because she's naive or be not naive or she'll go along with it, because she understands this is the game we play, and that game's not related to true or false or right or wrong. It is narrative promotion and battling dissent, Jeff.
7: Well, she does that. She's playing that game, whether she understands it or not, I guess. naive may not be the right word, but in the sense that they really don't think there's anybody going to come back at them with the truth or with a a, a challenge or with a critical insight or with, you know, that's going to hold. And to a large extent, they're right, because critical insights and critical challenges don't get amplified. They don't hold. They're, They're allowed to be said for a little bit on Twitter, and then they get, you know, shadow banned. but the dominant narrative stays consistent and it's, this is what's happened and it's very bizarre. And uh, so in that sense, you don't have to be someone who, you know, set your mind out to plan that strategy, but if you're someone who's working in that strategy and comfortable with that strategy and repeating that strategy, you'll get along just fine. And that's what happened to Mia Jankowicz. She's getting along just fine.
0: One of the things, here's a perfect example. One of the things she tweeted, Biden notes 50 former NETSEC officials and five former CIA heads that believe the laptop is a Russian influence op. Here's the thing about that. And you and I both know. Uh, it's 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 it's, it's a, a logical fallacy. It is an appeal to authority. It's an appeal to numbers. Oh, enough people said believe something, and these people are authority figures. Therefore, we must ha- we have to accept it as true without using any critical thinking, without any asking any questions. We take this superficial assertions. A bunch of people said it. And their CIA and national security people, which, if you use critical thinking, should be even more reason for questioning. And again, I think that shows that's where she's at. She knows, look. If it comes from the CIA and national security, we got to treat it as gospel. And so it's what's happening now is very, very dangerous. And let me add this, if you could comment on that. This, as Tucker Carlson said, this is how we got to Ukraine, where a bunch of Americans think it's okay to risk the future of humanity on God only knows what supporting a bunch of Nazis. Uh, Jim?
7: Well, yeah. I mean, the business about the CIA personnel and intelligence agency people – they're saying this was Russian disinformation. You know, what's even worse about this to some extent is that when you push people on it, I've had this happen to me recently. Oh, but they they didn't they didn't actually say that. They just said it has all the earmarks of it. So they themselves were careful not to say they actually knew that it was. This is such baloney because yes they did. Just like the original seventeen 17- uh, the, the one that Clinton knows, the seventeen oh, yeah. and Right At the end of that, that they said very clearly, this is an estimation, it's not to be taken as a fact. But it was, again, it was framed and narrativized as fact. It was promoted. The people for five years, or for, for, for how many years about the whole Hunter Biden thing, they, the, the news media that presented it may have put that little disclaimer in the 10th paragraph, but the overwhelming impression they gave you was that this was a fact. Russian disinformation, and everybody treated it like that, and then they come back if you push them on, and say, like, well actually they, say, so they, they've covered they've covered their butts in that with that little disclaimer in the thing, but you know it's, it's the framing and the narrativization of the statements that they made that actually counts, and that's what we've, we we've seen and in, in terms of what Tucker Carlson said, it was a really powerful segment, and I, I hate it. Because it was, you know, he's being, he's absolutely right in this, you know. I remember that, remember that, I had in one of my articles about Russiagate, the, the Keith Oberman, nutty little,
0: yes. he had a,
7: we're at war with Russia. Russia has taken over the country.
6: Russian
0: Actually, scum. He, was, he said scum.
7: Russian scum. Yeah, exactly. And this was, this is exactly the, the impression that was driven into people's minds is, as you say, Russia, Trump killing democracy, taking over the country, hacking the election, blah, 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 blah. So that has lasted. That impression has been repeated and repeated and repeated, and therefore it's lasted in the minds of people, and it does underlay what is going on with Russia and Ukraine, where it's evil Putin and Russia. That's all you have to know, and you don't have to know any of the actual political history of, uh, history of Ukraine. And what every American foreign policy expert said about this from from 1991 on about not doing this with you not bring stringing ukraine along like this what the present cia director william bloom said about it you know everyone said this is a way of getting ukraine as a as a spearhead against russia that's going to work against it's going to put ukraine in the crosshairs in a very dangerous way so that is you know the russia gate was a preparation for this war that we're now well, you have Congressman, Democratic Congressman, on top. We're at war with Russia, maybe a proxy war for now, but we're at war with Russia. This is
0: crazy. Well, you know, the interesting thing is in an, inter- in an interview recently, Noam Chomsky said There's one, there is one Western statesman of stature who is pushing for a diplomatic solution to the war in Ukraine rather than looking for ways to fuel and prolong it. His name is Donald J. Trump. And that comes from Chomsky, a guy who had Trump derangement system to the highest degree. So I think that that's interesting. And another reason I'm not a Trump fan, but that's another reason they hated Trump so bad, because he wouldn't go along with all of that crap. Jim, thanks a lot. We've been talking with Jim Cavanaugh. He's a writer at the thebolemicist.net and Counterpunch. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. Inflation has reached a 40-year high. Also, we discussed the Fed's moves to raise inflation rates and whether that will improve or degrade the economic situation. Joining us to discuss this, we have Dr. Jack Rasmus. He's a professor in economics and politics at St. Mary's College in California. Dr. Jack, welcome back to The Critical Hour. My pleasure. Let's start here. Inflation, before we even get to the Fed, infl- and, I, and I think we're going to work on all these things will come together. Inflation is at a 40 year high and I would argue and rising. Um, how much of it is um, the sanctions on Russia? How much of it is kind of systemic problems that have been here all along? Biden's policies. What's coming together to make this inflation monster that we're dealing with? And do, do you see it subsiding anytime soon?
8: Well, you know, the Republicans for over a year now say it's uh, too much demand, too much household consumer demand. They got too much money with the Relief Act, and th- therefore it's demand driving inflation. Uh, Biden says, oh, it's potent. It's Putin's inflation. They're both wrong. Absolutely. Here's my anatomy of inflation over the past year, anatomy, meaning what are the various causes that have been driving inflation and continue to do so when the economy opened last spring you know may june july last spring yes uh, people went back to work and they had more money because now they were working and there was some demand early over the summer pushing up inflation if you look at the charts it was uh, prices were pretty flat till the spring then they started rising some now you got to remember. Uh, what hit the economy from the Relief Act in the third quarter of last year was only roughly $200 billion on a $5 trillion quarter of GDP. It could not have pushed prices up very much, and it didn't. Uh, Then we had the problem starting in August, September of the supply chains. That was much more serious. Both global supply chains for goods, imports, exports but also domestic supply chain problems, which generally the media didn't talk about very much. Uh, you can look at the chart and you can see a sharp increase in prices uh, corresponding to the emergence of that supply chain problem September, October. Then in the fourth quarter, we had a continued increase. Uh, I think it was because corporations began hiding behind the supply chain problem, even though The supply chain problem hit only certain industries and companies. Others used it as an excuse to push up prices anyway. These were the monopolistic companies and industries, you know, the oil industry, uh, uh, commodities industries, uh, food industries like uh, bakery goods and, you know, four or five companies control all all of the cereal production in the United States. Uh, So we got an overlay exacerbating the supply problem from this monopolistic price gouging. Then we get into the first half of this year, or the first quarter of this year, and uh, yes, uh, to some extent, the sanctions, the war and the sanctions continue to drive prices even further. I mean, when you put sanctions on uh, gas and oil, which are globally traded, in other words, it's the global problem in oil oil production occurs, it's going to be reflected in in prices in the U.S., even though U.S. oil companies uh, don't have a supply problem. Why don't they? Because just look at what they were producing in terms of barrels today, U.S. production in 2019. 13.4 million barrels a day of oil was being produced in the U.S. What did they produce when the war hit and the sanctions hit? 11 million. They have the capacity to produce more than 2 million more barrels a day, but they don't, and they won't, because they want to keep the prices up. You see, it's not only demand that drives prices, increase in demand, it's a decrease in supply that also drives prices up. So we get this problem here with the war of, of global uh, futures commodity, oil, and so forth speculators, driving up the price of oil and driving up the price of commodities behind the sanctions, which in many cases didn't even take effect yet, although they are now. And it's not just sanctions on oil and gas. It's also sanctions on key commodities that are only produced or largely produced in Russia. Certain metals, you know, nickel, palladium, certain grains, wheat and so forth, uh, fertilizers, uh, all of these are problems that were overlaid on top of these other problems driving prices. But, you know, he says, it's Putin's inflation? No, it's Biden's sanctions inflation. That's the problem. Now, it doesn't stop there. What we've got going on right now is, if you look at U.S. productivity figures, they are in freefall. U.S. productivity is collapsing. When productivity collapses across the board, so almost all industries going on right now. It's the worst collapse since 1947. Companies raise their unit labor costs, and unit labor costs then get passed through. Unit labor costs uh, costs are a function of two things: one productivity and wage hikes. There is some wage hikes going on at the top end, you know, the best paid job hopping now and the low end of the wage structure and the labor force. In the middle, there's no wage increases going on. The big problem with unit labor costs rising is productivity collapsing, and then companies raise their prices to cover their unit labor costs. That's going on right now. And what's also now beginning to emerge is inflationary expectations. People, consumers, and businesses, when they expect prices to rise, they go out and, raise their prices in anticipation, or they buy stuff that they weren't going to buy because they think prices are going higher. Exactly what's happening with uh, automobiles and exactly what's happening with homes and so forth. Uh, So interest rates, uh, the Fed, are pushing people towards inflationary expectations and purchases, which is a demand problem. So you put all these, these forces together, you've got a mix of supply and demand, mostly supply, And mostly price gouging by monopoly corporations, uh, some supply chain problems, and sanctions, of course, playing a big role. But now you've got problems uh, with unit labor costs and and, uh, expectations. That's the anatomy of inflation. That's what's driving it. And it's not, you know, the simplistic thing, oh, you know, it's people who got too much money, they're spending too much. That's BS. That's not true. And it's not Putin's war, it's uh, the sanctions.
0: It sounds to me like that the idea that you've got to raise interest rates to address. Inflation is an ideological position as opposed to an economic position, because an economic position says first you have to determine what's causing the inflation, and then you can determine what tool you use to address it if you have one. This says any the, the ideological argument basically says it's it's almost like. Tax cuts for the rich. What do you need? The economy's not doing well. Tax cuts for the rich. The economy's doing great. Ah, we got to tax the rich. That's kind of stagnant. Oh, that means we need tax cuts for the rich. That's an ideological position. It sounds to me like the concept that you must raise interest rates in order to address inflation is an ideological position of people that just want to do that anyway, because it certainly seems that there could be any variety of factors, as there are now, a variety of factors that caused the inflation in the first place. Dr. Jack.
8: Yeah, well, uh, you know, politicians of both parties in Congress want to throw the ball over the fence to the Fed, make the Fed handle it so they don't have to uh, raise taxes, which they don't want to do, you know, or cut taxes, like you say, or government spending. They don't want to do more social spending. Congress doesn't want to because they're escalating uh, war spending. Uh, And if they do both of them, they got a a further deficit problem. Uh, And they don't want to raise taxes on the rich. We know that to slow down inflation. That's, that's not never going to happen with this Congress. So fiscal policy, taxing and spending is off the table. They throw it over to the Fed and say, raise interest rates, Fed. Well, raising Fed interest rates it really targets demand. If it's a supply-driven problem here and a policy war policy problem, targeting demand, that's all the Fed can do. The Fed can raise interest rates so high so that people don't buy cars, uh, they don't, businesses don't borrow, uh, they don't buy houses. In other words, take inflation out on the backs of households and consumers and small businesses. That's what raising rates by the Fed is all about. Attack demand instead of the real problem, which is supply. Now, they did this before. They did this in 1981-82. This is a return to Reagan and Paul Volcker and and the Federal Reserve's policy in which we had rising global oil prices because of problems in the Middle East that were spilling over to the rest of the economy, and they decided instead of doing something about oil prices, uh, controlling prices, setting price controls or whatever, uh, are going after OPEC and the Saudis, Uh, What they did was say, well, we're going to make the consumer and the worker pay for it. And that's exactly what they did. They raised interest rates until it provoked a recession, a deep one. People got laid off. They didn't have income. Therefore, they couldn't demand and buy products. That's where the Fed is heading right now. The Fed thinks that, oh, you know, we could avoid that recession. We can get a soft landing. Well, that's nonsense. Whenever you've had inflation, double-digit, and we have double-digit inflation, it's always been followed by a recession. And that's coming, if not already here, because in the first quarter of this year, U.S. GDP already declined. And you're going to see the problem hit consumer spending and business investment here over the summer. And I think you know it's a foregone conclusion. Um, I'm in the process of writing an article uh, that says simply the Fed decides recession. They're going to use recession to try to take it out on the backs of demand and and workers and families and households when the real problem is oil companies global i mean oil is over half of the cPI price increase it's over half of the you know the cause of it uh, so you would think you would target oil prices with maybe uh, oil price controls or um, Forcing uh, forcing the uh, companies um, to produce more, which they're not doing, or some other measure, uh, you know, windfall profit profits tax on you know their price gouging, but they're not considering any of that. By the way, those those measures were, in times past, before neoliberalism, before Reagan, before the present, those those measures were used to control inflation, but it's totally off the table now. Uh, because the oil companies, you know, shall not be touched. Uh, and uh, that's the problem we got here. We've got politicians in a political system now that is uh, bought lock, stock, and barrel by the big corporations, especially the oil companies, especially the war companies, especially the big banks. And that's why they have no solution to this. Uh, it's going to rise over the summer. I have no doubt about it. The 8.3, 8.5 is a low low-ball est- estimate. I won't go into the reasons, you know, technical reasons why the CPI low.
0: What do you really uh, think, the, the, you know, if you could give a ballpark figure, what do you think the real numbers are for inflation?
8: Oh, it's uh, easily somewhere, CPI is easily somewhere around 12%.
0: And would you say this, and rising, is it going to continue rising for the foreseeable future, or what are your thoughts?
8: Uh, Yeah, I think so because uh, if you look at the latest report, uh, you know, the mainstream media says, oh, 8.3 versus 8.5 the prior month is slowing. No, no. Look at the details. And the non-energy sector, the non-food, non-energy is called core inflation as opposed to if you put energy in, it's called headline inflation. Look at the core inflation. In other words, all items except food and and uh, gas, gasoline, right? That doubled in the last month. That rate of increase of all of the core doubled. That's telling me that the inflation that was driven largely by food and, uh, and, and gasoline and energy is now spilling over to the rest of the economy uh, and services and so forth. And that's driving what's going on now. Uh, you have a
0: little well, well, unfortunately, Doctor Jack, I have to I hate to hate to break you, uh, cut you off, but we're just about out of time. Hope I can get you back later on in the week, maybe Friday, if you're available to talk again.
8: Yeah,
0: I'll be glad to. All right, good. We've been talking with Dr. Jack Rasmus. He's a professor in economics and politics at St. Mary's College in California. You've been listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon, we hope that you are informed and enlightened. We look forward to talking with you all tomorrow right here on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. We are out.